Hello and welcome to Employment Talk. We're here to discuss the HR issues affecting you and keep you up to date with the latest employment law matters. I'm Glenn Hayes, National Head of Employment Law at Erwin Mitchell. Hi, and I'm Jo Mosley, and I'm a support lawyer here, and I keep a keen eye on the employment law developments and write our newsletters and blogs. All right, and Joe, what's on the agenda for today? Well, we, well, I, I certainly enjoyed our chat a couple of weeks ago about how employers should deal with long-term ill health. And I thought it would be a good idea to discuss some of the issues around disability discrimination that we didn't get to last time. Okay, what specifically do you want to discuss? Well, I thought it would be a good idea to focus on how and when employers will be legally taken to know that someone has a disability. And I'm thinking about the situation where we know that people have disabilities that aren't obvious or easy to see. You referred to some of them last time. And as our listeners know, the Equality Act puts a burden on employers to prevent discriminatory conduct and a positive duty on them to make reasonable adjustments. So I want to explore how that works for employers and specifically whether they can avoid liability if they don't know, for example, that a job applicant or a member of a staff member of staff has a disability. Right. Yep. So I've mentioned that people have disabilities that aren't obvious or easy to see, and they're often referred to as hidden disabilities. Yeah. And I wondered, Glenn, whether you could put a bit more flesh on the bones and explain what we mean by hidden disabilities, please. Yeah, I'll certainly try. Hidden disabilities aren't necessarily restricted to conditions that employees don't want to tell you about. So these hidden things are hidden in the sense that they're not easy to spot unless you know what you're looking for. And even then, it's it's not easy. Mm-hmm. Or you see something. So um, an example, a really good example would be diabetes. Okay, So you wouldn't necessarily know that or even suspect that somebody's got diabetes, unless, for example, you see them taking pinpricks of blood or uh, to check glucose levels, for example, or you see them discreetly injecting themselves with insulin. I mean, nowadays it's even harder with diabetes because lots of people wear those um, self-monitoring things, don't they? Um, so don't even, the pinprick thing doesn't even come into it now. Right. And not not all diabetics, for example, are insulin dependent. So some, you know, some diabetics might have to just change their eating habits to control that diabetes. So it's much harder to spot. And that, so that would be a really good example. There are other examples such as things like dyslexia, which you wouldn't obviously necessarily be easy thing to spot. Things like PTSD, HIV would be another one. Um, mental health conditions are particularly prevalent at the minute. It's something we've spoken about before. Uh, and things like autism spectrum disorders, where you wouldn't necessarily know unless there's a specific incident that alerts your attention to it. Yeah. Yeah, that's helpful. Thank you. So should we start then at the beginning of employment? Can an employer just ask an applicant if they have any medical conditions that they need to be aware of? And, you know, that way they'd know in advance what they are dealing with. So I was thinking of issues where, you know, sometimes you see employers that give somebody a huge medical form and they're asking them to disclose everything from whether they regularly suffer headaches to whether they've got heart conditions. Yeah, so you can't ask on the application form for people to disclose medical conditions, but you can ask questions if you're inviting people to interview. So, for example, at that stage, those questions are limited to what you really need to know to make reasonable adjustments to the interview itself. So, for example, some autistic people have sensory uh, problems with bright lights, so they find them overwhelming and distressing. So you might have to adjust the lighting in the interview setting. 
Okay, some autistic people also have, can find it difficult to process questions and give a response at speed. So can uh -huh. uh, dyslexic people. So again, you might need to give them some more time to prepare and share those questions beforehand. So if you're asking people whether you need to make adjustments to the interview process, then at that stage, that's absolutely fine. And if you think about it in the context of a tribunal as well, you know, even the the, the tribunal forms ask people whether they need any specific uh, adjustments made for the hearing. So it's not it's not dissimilar to that really. Yeah, that makes sense. It's interesting, actually, that you talk about the adjustment process. I was talking to a friend a couple of weeks ago, and she's a senior manager in a charity organisation. And she was in charge of an interview process some time ago. And she knew in advance that one of the candidates was blind. And part of the interview process, the candidates had to work together to see how they, you know, they coped under pressure and all the rest of it. And she had written a case study and she had the foresight, obviously, to convert it to Braille. But what she hadn't realised was how much longer it takes for someone to read Braille. Wow. And she had to extend the timings on the day. And she's just said to me how stressful it was for everybody concerned. So obviously the other candidates had much longer to consider their approach while this person was still reading the Braille. And even though she tried to set, you know, offset the disadvantage, she really didn't think that it had gone terribly well. And she said that she learned a valuable lesson at that point that, you know, it's not just to convert something to Braille, for example, you've actually got to factor in ad additional timeframes as well. Yeah, I mean, I've seen tribunal claims that have been brought on the back of people not performing well in the interview for a failure to make reasonable adjustments. So, for example, take somebody with a stammer. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, do you need to adjust the, the the process for somebody with a stammer in order to give them the, the, the fair opportunity in order to perform well at interview? Mm -hmm. So, you know, you do need to think about these things and getting that information in advance will, will, will sort of help you, providing you ask the questions in the right way. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. So let's move on then. What about once you've decided to offer someone a job? Can you ask them to fill out a detailed medical form at that point? Well, I think the position is different then, uh, in my view. But ag again, it goes back to the reasons as to why you're asking the questions. So in my view, once you've made a job offer, you've obviously got to take care not to discriminate against an individual once you receive the answers to those questions. Mm -hmm. So if you're asking questions for the purposes of finding out whether there's an adjustment to be made, for example, you know, when you start work with us, do we need to make any adjustments for you in order to properly be able to perform sustained attendance at work, for example? Then providing that you're asking the questions for the right reasons, i.e. that you intend to then do something with them in order to, you know, help them effectively, then that is absolutely fine. But remember, those questions are going to be relevant to the job. So you need to tailor the questionnaire rather than use a, a generic version. You know, if they disclose something, it's it's absolutely incumbent upon the employer then at that point to consider what reasonable adjustments can be made. And I think what tends to happen, Joe, is that People tick no to the adjustment box on uh, on forms like this, and then it's six months, 12 months, 18 yeah. months down the line, you find out that's not actually true. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that, actually, because there may be lots of reasons why someone doesn't want to disclose their condition. We know, for example, that disabled people face barriers about being able to get a job and they're worried that I'm guessing, you know, I'm certainly I'm guessing that they'd be worried that if they told the truth, the job offer might disappear. Yeah. So what happens then if an individual doesn't tell the truth for whatever reason and the employer has no idea that they have a particular medical condition? 
Well, I think it depends on a number of different things. Okay, so it might be that the medical condition's got no bearing on the ability to do the job, and in that case, it shouldn't really matter. They're entitled to keep some things private, mm -hmm. but but if it has an impact on the uh, on the job, then it it should really be disclosed, and then because the employer can can still be liable in those circumstances. So, I mean, I have encountered situations before where employers would say to me, this person's actively lied when, fill, when filling in a form. Yeah. And you could argue that that's not dissimilar to somebody who, for example, has uh, lied on their CV about, you, you know, the, the experience they've got or whatever. So I mm -hmm. think it depends on, you know, the reason for the lie in the first place or, or for perhaps it's not a lie, it's just concealing the truth, uh, which I think is different in these situations, really. Mm. It's difficult. I suppose it's quite a difficult situation for an employer, really isn't difficult. it? Because, you know, honesty is, you know, something that is very important in an employment relationship. And you can understand why. Well, you actually, I can understand it from both points of view. I can understand why somebody doesn't want to disclose something equally. I can understand how cross an employer would be if they later discover something that is important. Well, look, I've had it in the context before with, in a care home where somebody's failed to disclose they've got HIV. And and the oh, issue goodness. was not whether or not they had HIV, because if we'd have known about it or if the employer had known about it, they would have been able to do something to take sufficient precautions. Yeah. yeah. Um, but the fact that it was it was actively concealed when direct questions were asked meant that the employer, in my view, could take action in that specific situation, yeah. assuming that the tribunal accepted that the, the reason for the dismissing that situation was because of the dishonesty as opposed to the fact that the employer didn't want to employ people with HIV, which would be a very different outcome in the tribunal, in my view. Of course, yeah. So let's explore that in a little more detail. In a situation where an employee hasn't told their employer that they have a disability, how is an employer expected to know? Yeah, well, there's two, there's two circumstances, really. The, the first is called in, where the employer is deemed to have imputed knowledge. So that's where information is given to somebody else and um, but it's attributed to the employer so for example if if you have a disability joe and you tell your uh, line manager or you tell an occupational health advisor that's acting on behalf of the company then the employer is deemed to know about it even if they haven't passed that knowledge on so if you take for example a very large organization you could see that situation arising relatively easily yeah um the second is uh, where they're deemed to have what we call constructive knowledge. So this is where the employer would have known if they'd made reasonable or appropriate inquiries. So what you can't do as an employer is just bury your head in the sand and ignore what's in front of you. If there's sort of telltale signs that somebody's got something uh, that's likely to amount to a disability, you might not know the name of the condition, but you've got some knowledge of the facts. You know, for example, you know that they've got a lot of time off. You know that they've, you know, they struggle at certain times in the morning or or, or later on in the day. Mm -hmm. um, you, you know, there's some telltale signs there that you should should require you to ask further questions, then you might be deemed to have constructive knowledge. And that's a matter for the tribunal to decide, really. Yeah, yeah. So we're talking here about quite complicated legal tests, aren't we? Yeah, massively, yeah. I wonder if it'd be helpful then to demonstrate how that can work in the context of someone who lies about their medical condition. So I, in preparation for this podcast, had a look and to see what sort of um, case law there was on this. And there was one that particularly struck me and it involved an employee who was employed as a part-time finance coordinator. And she'd suffered from stress, depression, low moods and schizophrenia for some years, but she'd actively concealed that from her employer. During her employment, she experienced several mental health problems, which resulted in poor timekeeping and sickness absence, which she said was caused by various physical problems. So she'd lied about that too. 
She was only employed for about 14 months. And during that time, she'd had 85 days off of unscheduled absence. And at the time of her dismissal, the employer had two GP certificates which referred to her low mood and mental health and joint issues and said that she'd be unfit for three more weeks. And they also had a hospital certificate which said that she was expected to be an inpatient for four weeks. So in that case, the tribunal found that the employer had constructive knowledge of her disability because it had received those sick notes and the hospital certificate. And they had both highlighted her mental health. And they said that the issue here was that the employer had failed to make any inquiries before dismissing her. Now, that case actually went to appeal. And the EAT said that actually it's not quite as straightforward as that. And what the tribunal should have done was look at what the employer reasonably should have been expected to know had it actually made inquiries. So accepted that it hadn't made inquiries, but it said, well, let's look at what would have happened had they done so. And they found, in fact, that the employee would have continued to have concealed information about her mental health problems and she would have rejected any medical examination that might have exposed her history. So the point to take from that was that even if diligent inquiries had been undertaken, the employer still wouldn't have known about her disability. Therefore, it couldn't have been fixed with constructive knowledge. And that's a case called A Limited versus Z. The parties were anonymized in that case. That's quite a helpful loophole for employers who haven't made inquiries then. I wouldn't necessarily recommend it as the best course of action, though. No, no. And I imagine there'll be lots of cases where that won't apply. You know, people may well lie at the first, you know, before they've actually got a job, but whether they would continue to do so for whatever yeah. reason, I think is a, is a different matter altogether. I think the more common scenario is somebody says, my employer was aware of my disability because of, and then a number of different other factors that should have collectively, perhaps yeah. not individually, but collectively meant that the, you know you're deemed to have that constructive knowledge and that's certainly the common scenario that we that we will come across really brilliant well i'm going to move on to a quiz now glenn oh, and you've you've highlighted some of the issues that are going to come up in this so i expect you to get both of these right right no, no pressure <laughs> right so the first one are you ready yep so this is an employee who works as an admin assistant they had a psychiatric condition controlled by medication so it met the disability test didn't disclose this to their employer when they were offered the job and they refused to fill in a long-term health declaration form or allow their employer to contact the doctor right so one of the interview panel knew this person but didn't mention the fact that they had these problems and the individual was offered a job and she gave her line manager a form which she asked him to complete so that she could get disability tax credit. OK, right. so she started work. She had a number of arguments with other members of staff. She was given a warning and then she was subsequently dismissed for rude and threatening behaviour. Did she, she bring argued, a claim by any chance, Joe? Sorry? Did she bring a claim by any chance? She did bring a claim. <laughs> she argued that. that she'd been discriminated against because of her di disability. She said it was a breach of their duty to make reasonable adjustments. Did she succeed? Yeah, I think she probably did. Yeah. And, and I think probably the unless you tell me differently, but I think probably the reason for that is twofold, really. One is that 
the, the person in the interview panel will have be deemed to have that knowledge on behalf of everybody else. Okay, that would be my first concern about this case. The second is that if somebody waves a form in front of me for disability assessment, and I think that would should or that should at least set off an alarm bell ringing in my head as to whether I need to make various adjustments thereafter. So I think I would say that they 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 probably did succeed. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. They did. The tribunal said. Uh, it actually went to the EAT this case, but they said that there'd been a number of clear war warning signs. You've identified some of them. They also referred to the fact that she refused to sign the health declaration yeah. form or gave her employer access to a medical record. So the only thing I say about the health declaration form is lots of people refuse to give that medical information and just, you know, for data protection reasons and just deem it to be private. So I think mm. on, on that basis alone, I'm not sure it would have succeeded, but certainly combined with the other two factors it would. Absolutely. And of course, she had this volatile behaviour at work. You know, that didn't come yeah. out of nowhere, did it? Yeah, so yeah. no, well done. One out of Thank one. We'll stop it one. there. Quiz <laughs> no, over. You're going to have another one. Right. <laughs> so the second case. This is about an employee who worked for a local authority. I think he was involved in maintaining the grounds. And he said he was suffering from stress and he became too ill to work and was signed off. The local authority referred him to occupational health and they said he was off work with a stress related illness, but that it wasn't depression. Okay. okay. So he did return to work, but then went off sick again and said that he had further problems with stress. And occupational health saw him again and said that he, he needed to obtain counselling, but that he wasn't disabled. So they specifically asked the question and uh, they answered no, he wasn't. So he was dismissed for an unrelated reason further down the line, and he brought a claim for disability discrimination. Now, the employer in that case argued that it wasn't liable because it wasn't aware that he had a disability and he, they'd relied on the occupational health reports to evidence this. Do you think the employer's argument succeeded? I think this is really tricky to be fair I could see this going either way so my, my gut reaction on it is that just because the answer is no on the occupational health report I'm, I'm nervous about relying upon that generally okay the fact that there's two absences combined for the same or very similar things albeit they're relatively short in nature so I, I think that the employer could in theory sneak on but if I was a betting man I'd probably say that the individual did win his claim. I think it's I think it's really tight Joe really tight. Yeah it is it's a difficult one and this case actually went to the Court of Appeal for a decision and they made the point that you've you've made that an employer can have constructive dis um, knowledge of a disability even though an occupational health report has incorrectly said that the person isn't disabled and in this case they said the key issue was did the employer have facts that indicated that the employee had a disability and what they were saying essentially is that the employer should have made their own judgment rather than simply stamping the occupational health's view and the tribunal hadn't asked about what the council actually knew and that it was an incorrect approach and it couldn't stand so yes you are right the problem with it is Joe is the issue of whether somebody's disabled or not is a legal, not a medical question. I know that sounds ridiculous, 
and it's massively influenced by the medical evidence, but it's a legal question. Yeah. So just relying upon that occupational health report by itself, in, I think will be the complete wrong approach to, to take really. So when you get in these medical opinions, you know, you can ask them to give an opinion about whether somebody meets the test or not for disability, but you know, you'll only be able to rely upon what they say, even if they're wrong about the, the disability, if you've asked the right questions and challenge them, if their answers are inadequate, confused or contradicts other evidence or where it's appropriate, you've made other inquiries. So it's, you can't just blindly accept it. You might have to go back to them and say, look, there's these factors. Are you still of the same view, for example? Uh, and it's generally much better to, to reach a decision looking on, on, on all the factors rather than just that one, really. Brilliant. Well, you've obviously seen situations where this has gone wrong. So I wondered whether we could finish by you sharing your tips on how to instruct a medical expert, such as an occupational health therapist. Yeah. Well, my Thank view you. is you, you only get out what you put in. If, <laughs> if you just fill in a generic form, OK, you're probably not going to get the information that you need and it's certainly not going to be uh, particularly useful. So it's in, it's important to ask the right questions. OK, now the obvious question to that will be, well, what are the right questions? And I think it depends entirely on the on the circumstances. So you're there to try and establish what's wrong with somebody. You're there to obviously ask whether somebody is disabled and ask them to explain the reasoning. But what you're really there to understand is how does this condition manifest itself on a day-to-day -day basis on somebody's ability to carry out normal day-to-day -day activities? So that's the, the, the legal test. Mm -hmm. So, you know, what can they do? What can't they do? And specifically, if, you, if you're doing it for the purposes of trying to, to help, what adjustments do you need to consider and make in order to allow them to return to work in some form of th that's useful to you? So a description of the type of job that they do, the things that, for example, in a mental condition that they would find particularly stressful, you would you would be interested in knowing things around that. If it's a physical job, you know, what's the limits of their um, physical limitations, for example, how long it's likely to last for, crucially what you can do to help them, you know, things like whether a phase return would be appropriate in, in certain situations, you know, cause, because what you're there to decide realistically is, can you as a business accommodate the disability that that individual has and it may be that that you that you absolutely can and and in those situations quite rightly should but actually there's sometimes that you can't but in order to reach that conclusion you need to have a full understanding of what that individual can and can't do with adjustments yeah okay and once you've got that you can then take an informed business decision as to whether or not you can bring that person back into your organization with adjustments or whether and sadly you might have to let them go yeah yeah, and that's the reason, isn't it, why, you know, it's generally much better to ask those questions of an occupational health therapist rather than a GP. Yeah, uh, and, uh, you know, and I think it's important that you are very specific in your instructions because, you know, what you want to do is to put your side of things forward. So what has the individual told you? How have they said it manifests in uh, on them because ultimately they'll have an opportunity to speak to the occupational health therapist whereas you won't as an employer generally so and if there's something that's not clear don't just blindly ignore it and carry on you know go mm -hmm. back and ask the ask some questions for clarification to me that's critical because then you can then sit down with that individual in the meeting okay discuss it in more detail and then make an informed decision as to that person's employment or adjustments or whatever so you know to me that's that's really important that's great thank you very much Okay, well that's it for today. If you want to hear more about the latest employment law updates alongside expert commentary, tune in in a fortnight. Thanks for listening. Thank you. Bye-bye.